Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I'm determined to tell you is the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. If you're here in the clasp on America's Bible bra, you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 AM, and 95.3 FM. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. Fresh from his debate. And, of course, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I think we should get Jeremy drunk and give him cigarettes and turn him into a Hitchens. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. So I get a little bit aggressive in, in one debate for just a little no, bit. No, I'm suddenly a Christopher. I Richard. think you weren't nearly aggressive enough. That's why we need to get you liquored up next time. You, you know what? You know what, though? The, uh, not to toot my own horn, but there was a reviewer one time that said, this Jeremy fellow is kind of like a cross between a Christopher Hitchens and a special education teacher. <laughs> and that that might actually capture that, the whole time. I'm not sure what that would be. <laughs> well, I think it was meant as an insult, but look, I took it as a compliment. You've got to slow down and sound out the word. <laughs> we'll actually be talking uh, more about uh, the Don Johnson appearance and especially the issues brought up on it later in the show. Coming up, we also have a jaw-dropping Stranger Than Fiction. Everyone's favorite, God Thinks Like You. Best ever. First off, though, we have witches. Witches? Witches. Luckily, they're not, they're not stateside, so we don't have to worry too much. Um, these witches are confined to Nigeria. There's an article by Mark Oppenheimer in the May 21st edition of the New York Times entitled, On a Visit to the U.S., a Nigerian Witch Hunter Explains Herself. Helen Pabio is a Pentecostal preacher. She has called herself Christendom's first lady apostle. So that means a lot when you grant yourself a title like that. Right, right. But, you know, if she was an apostle, she would be the one to know, right? So True. She is the author of Unveiling the Mysteries of Witchcraft. Yes. She trains others to identify who the witches are in their community. And she's written several books and has uh, published DVDs. Mm -hmm. She has a power of discernment. That is given to her by the Holy Spirit. Of course. In other words, whatever her intuition yeah. is, she's going to take as, as a word from God. Mm-hmm. Frequently, the people she identifies as witches are young children. The, there's a movie about this on HBO about Africans' witch children. It's a documentary, um, and we'll post the link. Saving Africa's Witch Children by Gary Foxcroft. Yes. Yeah, it's He's, starring Gary Foxcroft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the uh, I saw it on HBO, but you could see the the movie online as well. But uh, Gary Foxcroft is an Englishman who goes to Africa. He raises money in England and he goes to Africa to support a, a school which is basically a refuge uh, mm-hmm. for the children that have been discarded or abandoned because they've been accused of witches. And, and you know, the movie's like, it's not even an hour, but it's like the longest hour of your life right. where you have to see these 
horrific wounds of children who have been doused with with acid, acid and, and boiling yeah, water and really terrible. Up. Some yeah. of them are buried alive. Yeah, but Foxcroft in the in the course of the um, film, he kind of uh, exposes in this particular area of Nigeria what are the influences, uh, you know, and there's no one single cause. A lot of these kids, you know, every place that's poor has abandoned street kids, but it's clear here that of the role that the Pentecostal churches play. Uh, and including the the you know the, the woman that Jeremy just talked about, and mm-hmm. that is is that they uh, they distribute DVDs and uh, things that that show and and they show like a clip from a movie that was made about ten years ago where they show like covens of children. It's all this cheesy uh, production value, but if right. you're a gullible, you know, if you're a person without a lot of education, you see that and not a lot of media exposure, and you know, it's like when the movie Cannibal Holocaust first came out. The special <laughs> effects were so good that the director was hauled into court and asked to produce the cast just to prove that they really hadn't been killed and eaten. I did not know that. Fletcher, fact or fiction? That one's true. I, I will I'll stake my life on that one. Let's fact check, Dave. Yeah, you know, but I mean, if you remember in the 80s and 90s, we had this whole sexual abuse, witchcraft scare where right. there was mm-hmm. supposedly covens running wild around the countryside mm-hmm. sacrificing babies. When she's confronted, when the minister is confronted by the cameras about, you know, your movie, these DVDs are promoting mm-hmm. this, she takes the de- very defensive posture that it's because we're black and we're Africans and you think that we're unsophisticated, you know, and it's clear that she seems to have kind of a chip on her shoulder about, you oh, know, yeah, right. because we're Pentecostals, you're making fun of us. And Pentecostals Pentecostal churches are growing like wildfire in these areas, probably for the same reason they often spread in areas where there's a lot of poverty, and that is they offer this sort of prosperity gospel and an outlet for people to – if they show clips from some of these you know, services where it's just like you see Pentecostal services. Right. There's music. There's right. tongue speaking. There's possession and, and what they call deliverance, which is like exorcisms. But – the difference is these kids are involved, and a lot of times the uh, the the ministers, you know, scapegoat the children for the problems that the village or the family might be having. If your crops wither, Absolutely. or somebody dies, or another sibling gets sick, often these kids are are mentally ill or just simply too young to be able to defend themselves. But right. they get scapegoated. Yeah, what's scary is how low the the threshold for deciding if a child is a, is a witch or not is. Um, In her book, Unveiling the Mysteries of Witchcraft, here's a quote. It says, if a child under the age of two screams in the night, cries and is always feverish with deteriorating health, he or she is a servant of Satan. Wow, failure to thrive equals Satan. (laughs) That's going to apply to a lot of children. Yeah. What the article also mentions, too, is that there's a profit motive behind this. You know, it's supernatural beliefs are the the main cause here. But because these ministries also have exorcisms involved in them, so you not only do they identify the demon-possessed children, but the the prophetess can cast out the demons. Well, the parents have to shell out quite a bit of money Mm -hmm. for this to happen. And they talk about families kind of scraping together every little bit that they can why? Because they, they don't want the village to make their child an outcast or worse, even kill the child. Right. Um, and so, yeah, they, they pay out the nose to pay for these healings. Well, I thought, I thought about when I was looking, there's a, there's a couple scenes where they take him to this guy and he's like, you know, well, here's what I do. And you put these drops in their eyes and then you say these prayers. And even if a parent didn't believe in this, what would happen if you live in a village, there's all these people putting pressure on you to like, your kid's a witch, what are you going to do? It's it's like an ex- a racket, extortion yeah. or something like, I got to go 
take up to the exorcist. Otherwise, what? The kid's going to be right. threatened or killed or something like yeah, that. The next time there's a famine or some sort of disaster, they're going to come gunning for me and my children. Yeah, it's the same as any witch hunt. You saw it in, uh, in Salem over here. There's a lot of sociological type theories about about witchcraft and from like even from the Salem days or the Middle mm-hmm. Ages where it's typically there, there's a profile of these people that are usually accused. And often it's marginal people in the in the town. Well, right? that's the way it starts. Well, yeah, or and then it spreads like a witch hunt. But yeah. the uh, like you know in the Salem case it was. The, 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 these old people are often midwives or knowledgeable people, but they weren't part of like, you know, they exactly. were considered like yep. they get swept up in any other type of like a dragnet where this like, oh, you and then you and you. We don't like you anyway. Yeah. And then it moves on to the landowners because when you accuse them of being a witch, then you get their land after after they're convicted. So, yeah. Yeah. It also allows like an outlet for a lot of people to express things we talked about on the show before with possession and trances where you can – if people are oppressed, often they – it's easier to say it's a demon than say I have these feelings or whatever. But the other thing with with witchcraft is also it shows that people have a propensity to scapegoat for specifically like social misfortune. There's like a mm-hmm. cause and effect indicator that we have gone wild. That's one of Pascal Boyer's theories. Uh, we've talked about him on our show in the in the context of evolutionary psychology of religion. But that mm-hmm. there are different mechanisms involved in religious or supernatural thought. And one of them is over-detecting patterns that are of a cause and effect nature. And it often takes the social exchange system. If my milk sours, you know, there must be a cause. Uh, And Jeremy, I saw him looking at me the other day. So you put that together. You know, you'd look for causes. And often, again, it's the case where we attribute social misfortune to a, a person causing them. This must have been brought on by the evil eye or a witch. Yeah, it, it's interesting too because on um, th- this woman's website, she has now posted a response to this movie that's out that you're talking about that's been on HBO. Thumbs up? Not so much, uh, surprisingly enough. And, and it sounds to me like she's you passing know, the buck. <laughs> hey, she, she's scapegoating, is what she. Uh, let me read some of this. And uh, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun because I realize English is only one language that she speaks. Um, it's very – it's written in very broken English and I'm going to read it the way it's written. Uh, she says, be informed that some organizations that don't believe in the existence of God called humanist, all caps, in quotes, have formed organizations in the name of helping the helpless child of Africa from being molested. Stepping Stone Nigeria is one of such organizations. Yes, Stepping Stone is... That's Foxcroft's... Yes, that's the one highlighted in the movie. It has been investigated by by Nigerian police and discovered that Stepping Stone Nigeria is is not registered anywhere in the world. It is used as an internet scam. As at June ending, Stepping Stone Nigeria has made from the public fraudulent the sum of about 1,200,000 pounds sterling. Really? Have they made that much? First of all, none of that's based in reality. Right. It, it is a it is a public charity. Uh, it's through the UK, yeah. and their records as to their finances are made in, entirely public. Anybody can go and look at how much money they pull in and what that money is going out Absolutely. to do. So, so right. that's that's just a lie. She also says, and and here's the insidious part: it is discovered that Gary Foxcroft is a frontline member of Humanist Movement, all in caps who don't believe in the existence of God and of devil. 
I seem uh, to remember, didn't CFI also, I don't know if I saw it on Frangular or Friendly Atheist, but weren't they also sponsoring a group to go in and have like fact-finding missions that was busted up by I, I, thugs from I her group? I think you're right. And that's going back a, this is a maybe ways a year now. or so yeah. ago. Where, yeah, where, sure. yeah, I saw a clip where, where one of the guys, and I think it was one of the uh, locals that, that Foxcroft works with, held some sort of meeting uh, that was like, you know, here's what's going on with the witch thing. And that thugs from one of these Pentecostal churches showed up and busted up the yeah. meeting. Well, the New York Times says that she is seeking legal actions to try to curtail any criticism of her. Yes. Uh, she seeks an order of perpetual injunction restraining the respondents from interfering with or denouncing her church, says the article. Which is funny, then she she flips to the other side and she says all the people who are criticizing her uh, are trying to violate her religious freedom mm -hmm. to say that right. children – That sounds familiar. To say that yeah, – exactly. Yeah, that exactly. children are demons. So, I mean – yeah. On the one side, she's trying to block free speech. On the other hand, she's saying this is her religious freedom. She's also seeking about $13 million in damages from the charities that have exposed exactly what she's doing. I mean, we've covered before in the show, like the, the growth of Pentecostal religions. I think it was in the context of, do you remember that there was the video that came out of Sarah Palin receiving a laying right. out of hands yep. from a, yep. uh, was, I don't know if it's Nigerian, but it was a guy from Africa who is also a member of like the Assemblies of God type stuff. A right. prominent exorcist. Guard, yes. Yeah, that was supposedly guarding her from witches and such. This is the connection that we see even in this country is a lot of the, the Pentecostal churches in the United States, these churches in Africa are branches or related right, to right. them. I mean, it is, there are synchronistic elements here. I mean, it is, it is true that a lot of the, the regional religions had strong belief in spirits as causal agents in the environment that were creating natural disasters and havoc and, and other things. So the Pentecostalism really fit in well with beliefs from their culture. But like you said, it's it's not just an African phenomena. Mm -mm. I mean, she tries to say that this is this is racist. This is attacking them because they're Africans. She also tries to say that she knows that no children are actually being right. brutalized because she is African, and she knows how strong the family structure there is, and that couldn't possibly Christians would never allow that to happen. But we have all sorts of documented cases even here in America documented cases of exorcisms gone awry. Mm -hmm. It's well documented that these things happen in some of the more extreme Pentecostal circles. Yeah. I mean, we saw this in, in the Bible. There's all sorts of instances of demon possession and stuff in the Bible that if you read the accounts, it sounds like people that have schizophrenia. It sounds like people who are epileptic. It was very common in the ancient world and even today that if you don't understand what the physical causes of the situation are, it's very tempting to think, well, something has inhabited this person. They are not right. themselves anymore. This is not how human beings regularly behave. And we're not even talking ancient history. This is, this is fairly recent history. What's the general symptom, I think, of, of this sort of non-rational, simplistic cause and effect run wild that everybody's yeah. prone to? But like I was saying before, I think that, that you know, if people want to do something about this, definitely go and watch the video. But, but there are organizations that are sponsoring humanist-type movements mm -hmm. that promote more critical assessment of this, not just intervening directly to, to house the kids, but that promote like, you know, to go into some rural areas and, and explain, you know, this thing is bogus, this witchcraft right. type connections are, it's not true. And they, they sort of teach like critical thinking 101 to people. Speaking of which, it's time for God Thinks Like You. So, Luke, 
Are atheists more likely to have Asperger's syndrome? I have a collection of my things I'd like to show you. This is um, my Civil War diorama set, and there's General Lee, and there's General Grant. Oh, are we recording? No, Jeremy. How insensitive that is. Well, well Luke. <laughs> Please, think, Luke, how could you be so insensitive to like the that feelings is, of others? If you don't like that as insensitive, uh, my only answer is Asperger's and atheism, go to a conference and you come back and tell me that there's not a connection. There is a, uh, po- an interesting poster presentation that was uh, given at the Association for Psychological Science. I saw it because a lot of the blogs had posted it and Scientific American did a blurb on it. But right. – the uh, authors were looking at a connection between Asperger's disorder, which is some people might know as a, a, a milder form of autism. It's on the autism spectrum. It's also caused by vaccination. So, I th- okay, you're off the show. <laughs> so Asperger's disorder, if, if you're not familiar, that's the the symptoms are a mild form of of autism where the person might have social deficits in things like communication or even the inability to read emotions or, or like nonverbal cues in other people. So often, and they'll often have, you know, be very hyper rational in that they'll have these narrow scientific type abilities that are sometimes really good, right. but, but social deficits. They, well, well, they oftentimes lack empathy. It's very difficult for them to get like the natural give and take of conversations yeah. like, you know, when you're checking your watch, that means he's not interested, he's bored, that sort of cues right. like right. that. Yeah, but, I think it's been described as a failure of imagination sometimes too. Or um, mind they're, blindness they're, yeah, is what mind the, blindness. But the connection between Asperger's disorder and uh, and a lack of what you'd call, I guess, teleological type of thought, which is some people think connected to prototypes of religion and supernatural thinking. So let's define teleological. Meaning that you think that things have a purpose like fate or luck or God-type beliefs that events in your life must have happened because of its building towards some denouement or cause. Yeah, almost like what we talked about in the witch situation, hyperactive agency detection. The absence of which would be that just stuff happens, that that, that there's just random events that happen. You don't read anything in particular into it. But what the study found was that when they screened out people in comparison to normals, the Asperger types had lower levels of that teleological thought. That is, when they asked them about things like, you know, did an event happen because of a cause or was it intended to happen? They had lower types of attributions to that and more often just said, no, stuff just happens. Events happen. And they were less likely than people... What do they call it? Neurotypical? Neurotypicals is what yeah. we Nice. Less than neurotypical people, less likely to attribute anything to God, any sort of divine agency. So no, God has a plan for my life or this is what God desired or willed. If, in fact, part of religion is under undergirded by this tendency to over-attribute cause and effect to things, this teleological bias – wouldn't that then dictate that people who are, have Asperger's disorders would in fact be lower in religiosity or maybe that, that it sure. wouldn't stick with them as much as their siblings or something like mm-hmm. that? They might go to church or whatnot, but the aspect of God, this event shows that God is controlling my life or that he intends on this to happen to me would be absent in those people. Hmm. And this study suggests that that's true. Well, you can see where people are going to go with this. I'm sure somebody's going to try to twist this and try to say, well, atheists have some sort of disorder, some sort of brain damage, and that's why they don't see purpose and agency in all these things. I am up on my vaccinations, so that could be where this is coming from. One more time and you're off (laughs) the show. He's really pushing the button here. Well, what they did though – 
there's a second experiment, right? Right. There is a second and experiment. And this is this is the where we separate the wheat from from the chaff. And the gluten. And the gluten. They had 27 people with Asperger's and 34 neurotypical people who are also atheists. How how do you even find a neurotypical atheist? (laughs) I don't know. See? I mean, come on. I have questions about this study already. The Scientific American article says the atheists, as expected, often invoked anti-theological responses such as there is no reason why things just happened. And the people with Asperger's were significantly less likely to offer such anti-teleological answers. So this is interesting. It's, it's, it's not that atheists don't have teleological thinking. It's that they recognize it, exactly. think it. it's wrong, yes. and yes, as you said, they override it. They challenge it. Whereas the Asperger's, the, here's the difference, the Asperger's people just don't think in that manner at all. Sure. They, they don't think negatively about it. Oh, it, it right. can't be a god. They just don't think in that they way. They weren't offering teleological explanations or anti-teleological explanations. Yeah, was, I mean this, this yeah. kind of shows that, 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 that these are complicated issues but that part of it might be in fact – the Aspergery type of deficit where you don't think like that, but another part can be learned, and that is is that sometimes you have to learn to override. There's other experiments showing that, for example, with uh, attributing blame for disasters, that often the initial response is the person must have done something to bring this on. If there's, you know, why don't those Hurricane Katrina people get out of town? They're stupid. But that you actually have to um, learn to override that by saying, no, no. That's my initial gut response, but I know that that can't – you shouldn't blame people because stuff sometimes just happens. Mm-hmm. And so there's probably also a learned component with what many atheists probably learn to do and that is, is that they, they have the same reactions initially that everybody else does but then they override them with the recognition that this is a tendency that people have to say stuff happens for a reason. But I know that that you know, is not always true and that sometimes right, – I mean, right. you, you see this all the time with uh, – you say something like, oh, geez, I hope – such such and such doesn't happen, knock on wood. You know, there's that teleological thinking, but nobody, you know, if you were to ask them on a more critical level, do you really believe that just saying something could happen might bewitch it and make it actually Mm -hmm. happen? And people will say, no, no, if you actually subject it to scrutiny, of course, that doesn't hold up. Right. Yeah, and there's even experiments that show when you place people under what's called cognitive load, that is load them down with math problems or something stressful that they actually revert back to more teleological type thought. That is, it's almost as if they have a resource allocation and once you deplete the resource, they lapse into more, I guess, what you would call primitive thinking of stuff happens because of a reason and then when they're no longer loaded, they revert back to, well, wait a minute, I shouldn't think like that. So that's the disorder, not atheism. Speaking of flawed thinking, I think it's time to revisit... Uh, Jeremy's recent debate. Because we haven't talked about determinism and free will enough on the show. By the way, did you guys see the the new t-shirt that's available in our store at zazzle.com slash doubtcast? I couldn't get it to work. For all the fans of determinism and reasonable doubts. Determined to listen to reasonable doubts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to be known as the determinism If you don't like that t-shirt design, you can always choose... To get the one of our many other. That's right. Now, the last episode that came down the the pike here was a special episode where you, Jeremy, were on the Don Johnson show. And um, quite frankly, I really didn't think, no offense, that there was going to be a lot of people who sat through the entire thing. It was a long episode. 
It was, I think, for most of us, a very frustrating episode to listen to. I know it was frustrating yeah. for you to, to do. Yeah. No no offense is taken because I almost didn't post it for that very reason. I really mm. didn't know, is this really worth actually putting right. up there? I was even a little embarrassed posting it because I didn't – you know, I didn't feel like I was at the top of my game, and it, it was just a frustrating hour and a half of discussion with these guys. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I was really, really impressed to see all the feedback and all the support from our listeners. You know, on a personal level, that did mean a lot to me. I was pretty nervous. You know, I'm I'm a human being. Uh, that's mere rumor. But anyway. I have Asperger's. You're just an object to me, so. <laughs> okay. Being I have right. feelings, and so I don't always want to put out an example of a train wreck that I'm involved in out there for people to listen to. Yeah. But I decided, eh, I'll just do it anyways. And it was really nice to get all the supportive comments from people. People had right. some very nice things to say, uh, you know, about how I handled it. Uh, and people had criticisms, but the great thing was they were really constructive they were. criticisms. They were the great. criticisms I got from people meant something. They really did help me to understand better what was going on and how, how to better handle debates like this in, in the future. So I just wanted to start by thanking our listeners for doing that. So that being said, um, yeah. I, I know I know you wanted to respond, Jeremy, to some of the um, comments and criticisms and kind of put a, a final head on this discussion. So one of the questions that came up over and over again were questions regarding language. Yeah. On the Don Johnson show, every time I used the word choice, he would speak up in the background, choice, choice. And I got really frustrated with it. I can't imagine why. And I ended up conceding to him that our language is a little bit antiquated, but it's not a big deal. It, for the most part, describes reality correctly. Yes, there might be better ways of putting it, but we can use choice as a kind of shorthand. Yeah, your, your analogy to – or your uh, um, referencing the, the sunrise. We know the sun doesn't actually rise. It's just – it's shorthand for saying – the earth rotating around the sun, giving us the yeah. perception of the sun moving around the earth. The earth yeah. turns. Yeah, exactly. Well, some people pressed me on this in the emails and on the blogs um, saying that um, choice implies the ability to go in one of two directions. But determinism says you can only go in a particular direction for any choice. And talk of options implies that there are outcomes that you can freely choose from. Um, but if you're determined, you never really have a true option. There's only one thing that could happen. So they wanted to press this. What do you really mean when you say choice? So my response to that is, yes, choice does imply these things when you are working from libertarian assumptions. And that's the key thing here. I'm not talking about free choices. I'm using the word choice. If you're working from determinism, then choice means something slightly different. So I'll just... I'll, I just want to talk about what options and choice means really quickly to make it absolutely clear. Options are those things that an agent can freely choose from. That's the free will uh, sense of option. In that sense, there are no options. They are right. If all the contingencies are fixed, then there's only one possible outcome. Okay, but stepping back a little bit and realizing that we don't know how everything's going to play out. Uh, in that sense, when we talk of options, we mean all the theoretical outcomes that are available to a person provided the right set of contingencies play out to make it happen. So think of it this way. Think of software. Many of the programs I use on my computer have way more functionality than I'll ever need. Just because I don't end up using all the different functions in a, in a software program doesn't mean that I don't have the option to use them should the need one day arise. 
So, okay, so when offered a, a Diet Coke or a regular Coke, I may be determined by the total physical state of my mind at that particular moment to choose a regular Coke. But in the abstract, I have the physical ability to say I want a Diet Coke to the person. I have the physical ability to pay the cashier. And had the particulars of the situation played out even just a tiny bit different, Say I saw an issue of the Men's Health magazine at the register and it prompted me to think of how I need to go on a diet. Well, then I could conceivably have made another choice. I could have chosen Diet Coke had that situation been different. So it's acceptable and useful for the determinist to speak of options in this way. When the waitress says, what do you want to drink? I could say, well, what are the theoretical outcomes that are available to me provided the right set of contingencies occur to make that happen? Or I could just say to her, what are my options? That's what I mean by shorthand, using option as a shorthand. And it's the exact same way with choice. When you reach a fork in the road, there are at least two conceivable outcomes, even if your brain must arrive at only one of those outcomes. Whatever does happen had a physical cause sufficient to make it happen, and it wouldn't have happened differently unless one of the steps in the process was altered. But that's all we mean by a choice. A choice is simply that process at arriving at a particular outcome when different options are presented. So once again, we could say of all theoretical outcomes that are available to me, provided the right set of contingencies play out to make them happen, only one set of contingencies did play out, and that strictly determined the outcome which was turning right. Or we could save all that verbiage and just say, I chose to turn right. As long as we're not saying I freely chose to turn right, or I could have done otherwise no matter what, then I don't think there's really a problem there. So yes, options and choice, these do make sense. Maybe you have to look at your assumptions that you're approaching those words with and tweak your understanding of what they mean just a little bit, but they're, but they're perfectly useful. It sounds like those guys on that show were thinking of it as you have a gun to your head and you're like, I want to choose Coke, but I must choose Diet Coke. It's not like that. Right, right. Right. That that sort of thing is not uh, you 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 know you you are a zombie. You could not have. Uh, uh, I can't choose otherwise. It's not that. It's right. that you did make a choice, and that choice had causes. That's all it is. Yeah, I I use the term uh, could not have done otherwise, but I meant that in a very specific way, and I tried to clarify that when saying that. If we repeated all the contingencies exactly the same, if all the variables were just right, then there is one outcome that will follow. Yeah, so I think a lot of it's just they just read it as, you know, uh, they couldn't have done otherwise as being apart from your will, like even that they were saying even if you wanted to do otherwise, you couldn't have. But determinism says your want is determined. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Whatever the state you wanted, of your will you is felt determined. like a Coke, that's determined by something. Yes. So you're never forced into something against your will necessarily. But you, yeah, you don't uh, Unless it's what by an will. outside agent like a government or something that's oppressing you. Yes, you choose according to your desires and your wills. It's just those desires even, are determined. They're part of the causal like, process. Schopenhauer said, I think that's his big quote on that, is that a man cannot choose to will as he wills. Right. Right. Well, I guess, and I'm not, and this is nothing against uh, people listening to the show who don't have a strong background in determinism, and these concepts are are hard to grasp. Um, they are hard to grasp, and you know, sure. if you're just listening to the show, I don't expect you necessarily to have a background in this. But I feel like the guys on the Don Johnson show, and I said this before you were even on the show, Jeremy, in response to the episode where they talked about us, they had no they didn't really have any interest in understanding 
the other position. They didn't work with me at all. I'm okay right. with them not understanding, but they didn't work with me at all. I mean, it's this. You could con- they, they contrast that. Contrast that to my interview with Brian McLaren. Yes. Of course, I was challenging him, um, but I let him explain his position. I even helped him set it up. He wasn't always explaining it adequately, and I read his book, and I was right. like, okay, I think this is important, and you haven't said this. So I asked a leading question to get him to explain right. what he meant so people could appreciate it for what it is before we critique it. There was no attempt like that. Uh, it, at, was what was, what was it was what was stubborn resistance at at every point. Yeah, you're asking me to give you what was yeah, that? Jeremy supply you with the argument to refute my position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. At which I began to do so. I would like to point <laughs> out to did. everyone. You I began to do so. Um, yeah. Oh man. Just yeah. Like at that point team. in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, you know what? It might be better off for the audience if Just I do Jeremy explain do this himself. both sides. Just We'll do this Stephen Colbert style, worthy opponent or something. <laughs> well, going on about the language, I, I, I do think determinism has implications, and I do think it, it would radically change the way we look at the world. So I don't want to minimize the impact of, of a determinist outlook. But I do at the same time think it's amazing how much of the language of morality and responsibility and choice, I think it's amazing how much we don't have to change. So – we just spoke of choice and options, but speaking of intentions and motivations still makes sense, right? Because we have desires that are causal determinants of behavior. Voluntary versus involuntary, that still makes sense too. Owen Flanagan, a philosopher, likes to say a wink is still different than a blink, even in a deterministic world. Hmm. With a blink, it's only a reflex action. It is determined. But consciousness doesn't enter into the the mix at all, into the causal chain. But with a wink, your thoughts, your beliefs, your values, character, that does go in. Consciousness is part of the causal chain. It's still determined. There's still a lot more going on there. But there is something of you in that outcome. So even voluntary versus involuntary still is a valid distinction. I think it's just the most tricky one is responsibility. You do have to tweak the meaning of responsibility in a deterministic universe. What it means is if that person's future behavior can be influenced by your judgment, then holding them responsible makes sense. Just like a Skinnerian reinforcement system. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we, we already recognize this with people who don't – when our reactions can't at all influence their behavior – um, we recognize that it's wrong to attack them. So grandma with Alzheimer's, right. forgetting your name, you don't get mad at grandma. You'd have to be a real creep to get mad at grandma because there's nothing you could say to her that could possibly change that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we recognize that. And with people who might respond to our feedback, we treat them differently. So uh, responsibility, I think, if you modify it slightly, that even makes sense in a deterministic world. Uh, uh, Jeremy, we got – this blog comment from anonymous Don Johnson fan, okay? And uh, let's get your response to it here. Wouldn't it be odd to punish people for their actions in a deterministic universe? Again, this the same argument. It would be odd to punish if it was if it was retribution, right? Um, but if it is, if it's for rehabilitation, if it's to try to help change future behaviors, then it does make sense. Yeah, we talked about that, and, and even in parenting, um, right. we talked about that. Uh, can we really predict the outcome of our input into an exponential number of metaphysical interconnected dominoes? By way of example, if a person doesn't know the syntax of C++, 
I don't know what that is. It's a programming, programming language. language. They can't just throw in something regardless of its coherence and logic and expect it to produce the correct output. A person must know how to produce the outcome they want by completely understanding the environment and language that they work in, whether virtual or real. That is a big claim. Okay, so if we're if the whole idea of responsibility is that you could change their future behaviors, how do you really know what's going to possibly change their future behaviors? Right. There's all these variables, mm-hmm. so it doesn't work. Um, I don't actually think the situation's that grim, and I think we have every uh, we have all sorts of experiences in our immediate lives that that point otherwise. So, yeah, we don't always know what the consequences of our actions are going to be, but. We have a pretty good idea of the probabilities involved sometimes. So if you're trying to get your kid to clean his room, telling him, Johnny, go upstairs and clean your room or you don't get to go see the movie tonight with us, there's a pretty probable outcome that that's going to prompt him to then clean his room. Spoken like someone who has no children. (laughs) Let me just say that right now. But well, thanks I, for undermining. Me. I see. I see your point. I just wish children actually All worked right. that way. Well, but more yeah. difficult children. You know, they have better behavioral programs. There I mean, go. that's what they they train people to do. You know, you get a chart, you get a sticker for every day that you right. clean or, your room, and you positively been, uh, reinforce that behavior. Who have a prior learning history of intermittent reinforcement are often more difficult to train. So yes, it's mm-hmm. actually your fault if Jeremy can't control your kids. Oh, is that what? It, oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> But but you get the you get the idea. What right. you're doing there is you are introducing new uh, new contingencies. You are setting up a deterministic process that you're hoping has a certain outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, just because there's some ambiguity as to if if it's actually going to work or what the consequences are, just because we're not always right, doesn't mean That's uh, not worth that trying. we can't try. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. That's not an evidence of free will either. No, it's not. Mm-mm. Another question from the blog, which should have been in the forum. Um, Aaron says, I don't see why the domino model fails to explain the determinist position. Jeremy continued to insist that the mind is involved in decision making, that it's not as if someone presses our button and we automatically respond like a robot. However, no matter how elaborate the decision making process is, it is still determined. It doesn't matter how many variables are influencing the domino. It's still going to topple in the direction that its background forces it to topple. No matter how complicated the process, determinism says it can only fall in one specific direction. Okay, thank you again for that challenge. I just think the listener here misunderstood the purpose of me critiquing the domino analogy. I certainly wasn't trying to avoid determinism. I mean, that was the very thing I was arguing for. That wasn't the problem with the domino model, that it was deterministic. And also talking about how complex the complexity of our choices wasn't trying to then fit in some sort of free will into the complexity. Um, The reason why I challenged the domino analogy is because of all the mistaken assumptions that were behind it in, in Don and Brandon's mind. So the challenges they were giving to me were things like, how could one – in a deterministic world, how would one outcome be preferable to another? How could a person be ever be persuaded to change their mind? How could we have desires and how could we have any deliberation? How could anyone have the intention to deceive? Those were all the things that they didn't quite get about determinism. And that, that domino – Some of the things they didn't quite get right. about determinism. 
the domino analogy to me, because of its simplicity, was allowing for those types of misunderstandings. Right. So I tried a thermostat analogy because I thought it was a little bit closer to the real situation. The thermostat analogy brings in information from the environment, which I thought was very important. We did, though, we had a listener um, whose name is Greg posted a great comment about this, and I wanted to read it for our listeners. And Greg works within the domino analogy to, to try to show this with much silliness ensuing. He says, perhaps an analogy they might better understand would be the dominoes would be dominoes over varying shapes and sizes, which offer reactions that affect the next domino in sequence, whether or not it's pushed over. He says, imagine that there are hundreds of lines of these dominoes all intertwined in ways that would defy our understanding of gravity. But ignore that. That's just a limitation of the analogy. Hmm. When one domino strikes another, the angle at which it strikes, the weight of the dominoes in question, their sizes all come into account. That's the decision-making process. All things being equal, there's no question that a particular domino will fall or not fall. But it's the result of a cumulative process in which extremely complex factors were intertwined. Now, I, I, I like that. I would even a add to it. You would also have to have um, the dominoes set up that at any time a person or the environment could stop one row of dominoes and could trigger another row. Sometimes you would have different rows of dominoes racing against one another or piling into dishes of a scale with the heavier of the two dropping down and starting some new chain reaction. I mean, this is how complex you need to get it to, to get a full appreciation right. of what's going on. So the problem with the simple domino analogy is that it, it doesn't make any sense of the fact of, of all the different contingencies in the situation. It doesn't account for the fact that we have opposing desires. I can have the desire to smoke at the, at the same time as having another desire to be more healthy and to stop smoking. I can have desires against my desires. Uh, it doesn't account for competition in the mind or the power that the environment can have on the outcome. It doesn't account for how the environment can stop a causal process that's in process, can interrupt it and begin a new one. Well, even so, their objection to like uh, you can't change – why would anybody try to change anybody else's mind? That still reflects a misunderstanding of determinism as in you're determined uh, – Jeremy's determined to be obtuse on this yes. issue. No. Right. If I try to change your mind, I am a deterministic influence on you. Yes. Then. Right. I can – if my argument is persuasive enough, for example, I am shaping your – that's a reinforcement contingency thing that might change, in fact, your mind. So it doesn't mean that you freely chose to change your mind. In fact, if I am persuasive, again, the language of choice is not relevant to that. I am an influence on you. It doesn't mean that you're determined to always think something forever in stone. Yeah. It's just a misunderstanding of the term, again, determinism. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I think that that poor analogy propped up that misunderstanding. I think uh, another problem just with the free will thing altogether – is that when, when we're focusing on whether or not we could do otherwise, it makes it sound like we're helpless. It, I think it gives us a, a false sense of our, of our true situation. I, it doesn't really matter to me if we don't have a godlike power to resist nature or to resist cause and effect. We have evolved amazing abilities to survive in our environments. All these deterministic processes that make up us allow us to respond in situations in intelligent ways. If you understand determinism properly, I think especially when you see it in an evolutionary context, 
you realize that determinism isn't something that strips us of our power. It is something that endows us with power. Again, not the power to choose freely against nature. We are part of nature. But nature has equipped us with so many abilities. Daniel Dennett does a fantastic job in his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea of capturing it. He talks about evolution as what what he calls the tower of generate and test. And I'm going to try to do a real simple a real simple paraphrase in hopes of putting determinism in a more natural context. Then it begins with the simplest organisms out there, single cell organisms that have only a few behaviors available to them, just the behaviors that are hardwired into them by their DNA. So here the domino analogy works the best. These creatures really are just mindless molecular robots. They truly are automaton. Mutation and recombination can help future generations to function better in their environment, but for any single organism, they come fully designed at birth. Whatever's there at birth is all they have to work with. But most creatures have what Dennett calls phenotypic plasticity. This means that aspects of their design can actually be altered by the environment throughout their lifetime. They are hardwired in a way that some behaviors can actually be reinforced by the environment. So think of Pavlov's dogs here. Think of classical conditioning. Whatever results in the environment can actually alter the way that organism acts in the world. They can be conditioned to perform acts that are beneficial to them. Now, just pure conditioning, it's still a blind process, but the point is that these creatures can learn to do things that are not hardwired into them at birth. Their repertoire of tricks, you could say, can grow in number and sophistication over the course of their lifespan. They are not as helpless as the simplest life forms, but they do still learn in a haphazard, trial and error kind of way. They more or less stumble into good moves or good tricks to perform in their environment. Now, some creatures have gone even further, though. So further up Dennett's Tower are creatures that have evolved an inner environment, which allows them to simulate conditions of the world around them. So this would be the very beginning of what we've been calling a mental life. So, for example, many animals have an intuitive sense of physics. I think of watching my cat on the bookcase. I have my cat likes to get up to the very top of the bookcase and then it never knows how to get down. You know, and I saw so I watch my cat kind of considering almost looking like it was considering the dead drop all the way to the ground. Um, but it didn't need to do that. It didn't need to learn by trial and error that that was a mistake. It backed off and found another way down because it realized I do that. I'm going to be hurt. It does this because it has kind of an intuitive sense of its environment, an intuitive sense of physics. It's imperfect, but they didn't have to learn it. They do still learn through reinforcement, but the basic knowledge of their environment is already hardwired by natural selection into their brains, and then it's tweaked or shaped by experience. Well, this allows those types of creatures to see opportunities and try out new moves with a better chance of working the first time around than if they were to learn merely by trial and error. These animals can learn more quickly and more efficiently. A rudimentary mental life helps prevent mistakes and allows the animal to solve problems in more novel ways. Again, they're determined. Every step of this process is determined, but they are not as helpless as those single-cell organisms were. Then we get to creatures like us, not just us, but creatures like us, 
creatures who have the ability to take in vast amounts of information, whose inner world is very complex, and also creatures whose abilities are enhanced by tools. So Dennett points out that tools take intelligence to design, but tools can actually endow us with greater intelligence. Think of a telescope or a microscope. Yes, it took intelligence to design those tools, but once we use them, we learn so much more about our environment. Tools are endowers of intelligence. And language, Dennett says, is our greatest tool. It permits us to abstract features from reality, to hold them in our minds, and to recall them from memory to use in solving problems and satisfying desires. And as language itself evolves, so does our ability to represent the world in more subtle ways. As our inner environment becomes more refined, so do our abilities. Now, these are all deterministic systems. The biology is determined by the genes, the behavioral conditioning is determined by the environment, and a rich, conscious mental life is determined by both. But what I want to point out is how far we've come from those simple cells, those creatures whose abilities are fixed at the moment of their birth. Now, we're still molecular robots, just like them. But we have feelings, we have ideas, we can change and adapt over our lifetime, we can acquire new abilities that we didn't previously have through learning. In fact, we can't help but to do this, it's just what we do, it's how we develop. But we don't do this outside of the stream of cause and effect. We don't do this in contradiction to nature. It's quite the opposite, our abilities depend on nature and causality. When you look at it from that perspective, it's a very different picture than this idea of the person who's being, who's held hostage by reality, who, ha, who at metaphysical gunpoint is forced to do something, even if it's against their desires or something like that. You know, you more get a picture that determinism um, is the ground on which our abilities rest. We have rich experiences and we can interact with our environment in very complex and subtle ways, and we can do so because natural laws have allowed very simple organisms to evolve in greater levels of complexity. So I guess that's, that's in a nutshell why determinism simply doesn't, doesn't bother me. All it shows is that I'm part of the natural world. I have to give up the little god in my head that can choose whatever it wants, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a part of nature. I mean, really, I don't have any other choice. Anyways, thank you for everybody who participated and, and gave your comments and your questions. I hope, I hope we have managed to make some sense out of this issue for people who, who are still having a hard time to get it. Um, now, I know I'm not the only one who's been frustrated with free will accounts lately. Uh, Luke, you came across something recently that had all sorts of misunderstandings about free will yeah, and determinism. Well, it was actually one of those synchronicities of the universe where at the same week that I was listening <laughs> to your uh, Don Johnson show that uh, on my desk I get um, journals for psychology of religion. I, I, I get like the – I'm a member of the American Psychological Association Division of Psych of Religion and their flagship journal the um, is the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality. Well, that month this year, the the – the first article in the issue was on free will and religion. In fact, the, the title is Choice, Free Will, and Religion. It's by a fairly major player in social psychology, Roy Baumeister and other authors. But it was, you know, right along the same topic that we've been talking about. So I thought it was, you know, sort of a parallel and it added to my, it sort of combined to my irritation with the people on, on your show, Jeremy, <laughs> in that this guy argues 
in favor of free will. Primarily, the thing that, that this adds, though, is this issue of self-control, which some of your people seem to, to harp on as well. I love that, that they're is, Jeremy's people. <laughs> yeah, that, that is – I think this is one of the uh, – coming from a psych background, I tend to focus on that part of it rather mm-hmm. than the philosophy. But it appears that one of their objections was that – you yes yes there are influences but you can choose to transcend them and they focus on the mental content of right. I have self control uh-huh. right. and this is what this uh, author Baumeister et al was talking about his general thesis if I could just summarize it is that we have a psychological capacity of self control and choice and planning and that this has uh, this makes it possible to live in a culture with other people because we exert that self control to for example, to keep our moral impulses in check and that religion assists that, that religion is good, in other words, because it yeah. enhances our ability to cho- exert choice and free will. And, and more than that, he believes that religion, that may have been part of why religion evolved. Yeah. He has an adaptive right. view of of religion. Religion evolved for adaptive purposes and that is one of the ad- – that is one of the adaptive aspects of religion is it allows us somehow free will. Yeah. And so I think that it, it reflected the same type of arguments made by those people on the show because, for example, if I could summarize one of his positions and that is that free will overrides behavioral impulses and that he says that we adjust our behavioral standards to rules and laws in a more than simple Skinnerian manner of repeating actions. That is, we weigh the costs and benefits. So he even makes a reference to transcending Skinnerian conditioning. Well, again, as we've been harping on with these people, uh, the mental content, the fact that you have a thought of, hmm, I know that there are these influences. You might even be aware of influences. Right. Uh, my Absolutely. dad just spanked me for doing this or, yep. you know, I'm getting fat so I better not have regular Coke. I should. The fact that you're aware of them and have mental content does not constitute evidence of your free will. It doesn't make them not determined. It's, it could be just simply a description of your process. I'm going to yep. have a Diet Coke today or I'm going to clean my room is not transcending determinism. It's a description of what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Even if you're oppositional, let's say uh, Dave told me to clean my room, but screw him, I'm going to go, you know, run away and play. Even that opposition is not evidence of free will. People who are oppositional are also determined to be oppositional. Mm -hmm. So for example, personality factors, we call in psychology reactants. If you know that somebody wants you to do X, screw them, I'm going to do Y, that's also determined. You know, mm-hmm. just like you getting a tattoo because your parents don't want you to is determined to as well. It doesn't mean you're transcending the system. It's part of the system. One of the things that bothered me about this is I was going in expecting to read like a modern case for free will, you know, a case against determinism maybe. And what I found was that that seemed to me, Luke, it seemed to me to be the opposite of the case. Uh, he is arguing – for determinism, he is explaining deterministic processes That's what was all the time. He's talking about the environment conditioning us uh, to to behave in certain ways, to resist certain impulses. He just he talks about religion as being a social factor, which uh, which ends up determining determining behaviors. But in the end, he just slaps the free will, self control word. On yeah. the end of it. So he cites everything a lot of, he's describing is completely deterministic. He cites a lot of well-known studies uh, on on self on self control as a finite resource. That is, if I tax you by giving you problems to work out in your head, like I stress you out. Uh, they've done some cool experiments where people that are trying to keep numbers inside their short-term memory are. Oh, yeah 
have less self-control for other things. So when they're stopped in the hallway right. and said, would you like a healthy snack or a gooey chocolate cookie? Those people that are processing things and taxed or loaded choose the cookie more often than the granola healthy bar, you know, mm. whereas people who aren't taxed choose that. Other people realize this too. Like, for example, if you're trying to stay on a diet and you're tired that day or you've had a stressful day, you're more likely to relapse from your diet or drink or whatever because there's a self-control as a finite resource. Yes, again, that's evidence of determinism. Yeah, right. if, if you have uh, a different – there are different amounts of self-control. You might be born when with a When you are thinking brain. more clearly, you, you know, that will determine your choices in a different way. When you're tired, it will mm-hmm. ruin that. Yeah, and he cites a famous study where they've actually had children come in and they could either take a short-term reward and get it like one cookie now or if they sat there looking at the bowl for – I don't know, 15 minutes and delayed gratification, they could get three cookies later on. And so there's this simple like go for this, the short-term lower payoff or exert willpower. I'm, right. putting, I'm using right. air quotes here, willpower. And, and there's a systematic difference. Some kids go for the short-term, some delay and get higher rewards. That is actually shown longitudinally to predict their performance in school. Yeah. SAT scores, behavior problems. Right. So he says, and it's this tied re- into basic temperament. You can take it the sure. other direction, and it's basic temperament. We all, too. and so yeah, that's the frustrating thing is we all differ in terms of if you agree that there are finite resources in self-control, so that you're able to exercise more than others. It's not a, that much of a stretch to say that we there's a bell curve that people differ in terms of there's some people are impulsive. We might even call them like you know pathological ADHD or children are often called like conduct disordered or oppositional at, at a young age. They differ in terms of some people are more Bart Simpson, some are more Lisa Simpson. That's determined. And if later on you come back and check on them and Bart didn't you know was a high school dropout and Lisa went to where does she want to go Vassar. You know, it's, you could describe that as a choice, like, well, he chose to be a brat, but that's evidence of determinism by their own temperament. Or like he mentioned, exercise you could do to practice things like meditation or there's even a program I remember that for ADHD kids I encountered in graduate school that was called Think Aloud, where they train impulsive kids to stop, right. think about what are the consequences if I do this or that. Keyword being trained. Yeah. That's, uh, again, and he's, and Baumeister cites this as evidence of free will. That's determined. Uh, you, when you train something, you're providing right. environmental contingencies. I think part of it is just self-control. Again, I mean, it's, it is helpful, like we used some other words, to use that as a, as a shorthand. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they reify that concept uh, instead of understanding, you know, what, what does it stand for? It's not like they're, the self-control is a homunculus inside that's stopping everything and, and controlling the situation. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is some training and influence or the the pressure from foreseen consequences of an action coming in and determining it otherwise. They put it in terms of self-control over impulses. They don't recognize that there could be competing impulses here and the scales tip in favor of one instead of the other. Yeah, and so your guys in the interview, and, and, and I hear this often from psych students, is that they'll say, well, what about therapy? What about some people who choose, uh, I'm not a crack, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood, but I'm not a crack addict like my friends because I chose to transcend that right. and, and went for the, you know, did it the hard way and went to school. Many, again, it always, these things always come back to a moral right. argument where they say, I chose not to do the evil action. But... There are genetic factors, for example, that predict progress in treatment. If you're trying to quit smoking, some people, if they have a certain form of a gene, are more successful than others. Now, you're right. me- you could focus on the mental content where the person says, why did I quit? Hmm. Well, because I have self-control and I just determined that today I wasn't going to smoke or whatever the content happens to be or the 
relapser might say, I don't know, it just happened, I found the cigarette in my hand. But that's a description. That's not a cause of their freely chosen behavior. They're simply describing what it's like to be impulsive or not be impulsive. Right. If you don't have as many receptors for serotonin or something like that and you're – I don't know if serotonin is the exact uh, neurotransmitter. No, like sociopaths, for example, have low serotonin level and there's genes that code for that. Right. If you don't, people are going to have different numbers of receptor cells for that. That's going to influence how satisfying is a cigarette or something, or maybe I'm thinking of dopamine. How some of these are are connected. It's going to influence how satisfying a cigarette is, how long you can hold off from not having another cigarette. This was another question that was brought up is why do we have the feeling of free will? And it's because of all of these different determinants of our behavior that we're probably completely unaware of. We are aware of one tiny aspect of that, and that's our inner dialogue, what's going on in our inner discussion when we're thinking these things through. And so we mistakenly think that's the only thing that's going on, but there's so much more going on. Or the inner dialogue is a description, not a cause. Well, that too. All right, let me drop a bomb on you here, and maybe we don't want to go into this today, but is determinism a falsifiable hypothesis? You can do lab studies. We, we oh. talk about those all the time. Like uh, the, in the moral range, you could do the, the magnetic stimulation studies where I can alter your choice and ask the person to move this hand or that hand and I could switch the magnet on and it changes your handedness. It changes your evaluation of a moral situation to activate magnets in certain areas. The person is not aware of that or like the studies sure. with brain stimulation, they'll zap a certain part of it. The person will get up and they'll say, why would you do that? Oh, I just wanted to go grab this Coke when in fact it right, was because right, you zapped right. their okay. brain. If priming never had any sort of effects, yeah. you know. No, that would you be change, a, yeah, a the, falsification. The Bard's priming studies where you alter how fast somebody walks down the hallway from having them read about old people or something mm-hmm. like that. Now, they could ask – they ask the people, you know, why did you do this before they bust open and why the, – what the study was about. And often the mental content bears no relationship with the actual manipulation. So I would argue that that, that does show that you could – Maybe not determinism in general, but at least it shows that people's conscious idea as to why they do something is often completely misleading. Sure. Okay. Coming back to the essay here, um, Baumeister's Choice, Free Will, and Religion. There's a really telling paragraph that leads me to believe that, that really ultimately what's going on here is that people who may not be familiar with this debate, they're not, they're not familiar with the philosophical side of things – are very apt to just come up with their own idea of free will. And there might be just as many different definitions of free will out there as there are people who believe in it. Well, you Um, even had in your debate their definition of free will seemed to change throughout the discussion. It was – like you said, it was a free will of the gaps. You know, it kept shrinking. Right. Well, what this does is this creates tons of confusion because (laughs) – Right. People people are talking about free will and determinism, but they're not talking about the same things. Mm-hmm. So here's this this a really revealing part comes on uh, the third page of the essay, where the person is describing the view of Dennett, uh, Daniel Dennett, and some others, basically a compatibilist view, saying that there are there are senses in which free will and determinism will work together. It's it's re- Dennett's account isn't really all that different from what we said earlier, just just that some of our language of responsibility and morality could still be retained. But the author mentions this as if it's his own position and he goes on to talk about he says some to some free will entails supernatural entities such as souls with supernatural powers to in- intervene in the physical world. To others it entails the absence of causal processes. 
He says, this concept of free will as a kind of behavior that lies outside the realm of causality does not mesh well with the view of free will as an action control for culture. Psychologists who discuss causality in human behavior typically include all manner of possible influences. To look for behavior that is independent of all those would mean ruling out just about all bases for action, leaving what would essentially be acting at random. To me, to me, that's like a major admission. To me, they've just realized that contracausal yep. free will doesn't work. And if you're going to study things psychologically, you're going to have to be talking in terms of deta- determined behaviors. What's the Latin phrase for true debt? <laughs> so it's just like this person already understands things in a deterministic way. They just don't understand that they're understanding it that way. Right. And they just continue to use this term self-control and free will, having no clue <laughs> that they're that they're using it differently than than everybody else who's having this debate. Yeah, but to be fair, they have no control over that. So you know, it's not their fault. Right. Well, we should try to modify their future behavior by pointing out how <laughs> ridiculous this was. And I think you're planning on maybe doing that, Luke? I don't know. Were you talking about writing a response to this? I, I, I was looking whether the journal would even publish it or not. So I think I might have to insert it into into something else that I publish uh, that, that is more uh, empirical because uh, often they don't give space for people to have lengthy just rebuttal responses. Okay. So – that's the very last we're ever going to talk about determinism, yes? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, probably. Never yeah. say never. Uh, at least for a little while maybe. I, and, and you know what? People love this stuff. Some people love this stuff and I'm sure some people have already stopped listening, which means they're going to miss out on a very fantastic Stranger Than Fiction. Breastfeeding fatwa causes stir. One of Sunni Islam's most prestigious institutions is to discipline a cleric after he issued a decree allowing women to breastfeed their male colleagues. Yes. Um, The problem is that in strict Sharia law, women are not supposed to be alone with other men who are not their family. Right. Now, there's an exception in – I'm assuming it's in the Hadith. Yes, that says, that's yeah. According to if, the article, if that woman had breastfed the child, uh, had breastfed the man more than five times, you know, this is like assuming it's when there are children, like a wet nurse. Then they are part of. They are a technically, according to Islamic law, part of the family, and therefore the woman can be alone with that person, or they can have their hijab off. You're at a bar. In well, maybe not in Saudi Arabia, but you're yeah. somewhere, and you want to you want to pick up on somebody, That's right. you know, or just hang out with them and talk. Pitch that one. Let, Listen, uh, so. Let, let me read some of it. Dr. Izzat Atia at Egypt's Al-Azhar University said it offered a way around the segregation of, of sexes at work. Um, yes, he suggests that women should um, uh, breastfeed because the act would make the man symbolically related to the woman and preclude any sexual relations. Now, I know plenty of people to whom um, I can see where this something is going like to. that – would be a sexual relation. Um, So his genius stroke is to realize that this should apply to adult males as well. Yes. Go If you have a female colleague in your office, all you need to do is suck her breast five times and then your family. 
of course, the trick with that is, and I don't know if you guys know this, but women don't lactate constantly. <laughs> this is this is what I heard. It's um, not going to work in all situations. No, and, <laughs> and I, I I don't know. I, I realize in you know Egypt and other Islamic countries that women's preference isn't necessarily the most important thing, but uh, this seems like something that you should probably get uh, get permission from a woman before you do. I'm just picturing the woman at the office going, you know, I'd really like to go down the hall without an accompaniment. I'd really like to be able to take off my my veil, uh, you know, and just let my hair down occasionally at work. So, all right, guys, line up. Line them up. <laughs> I pumped all night. I got five packs here. Who wants them? No, no. Everybody does this once a day for the rest of the work week. That's right. We're all cool. To be fair – um, this has been largely condemned by <laughs> everyone Nobody, else. <laughs> everybody else thought it was as crazy as we do. I think these, wow. these fundamentalist traditions give us the best material because it's often these people's very rational ways to get around stupid rules like the right. yeah. in, in religiosity, right. the, the, the phone that didn't dial on the Sabbath, but if you remove the pen exactly. it stopped dialing in you know whatever numbers uh, or uh yeah. the the thing you know or like even yeah. in islamic culture where you you get these short term marriages now so if you just want to hook up with somebody else like that you get married oh, that's really? like one of those short term things where you oh, can have sex and or evangelicals those. with their born again virgins yeah, <laughs> get yeah. there's all kinds of ways around fundamentalist rules so oh. and they're often very unbelievable amusing. but hey you know what try it i guess if you're at a bar and uh <laughs> Uh, you know, see where that gets you, because my guess is probably not very successful. And ladies, you have the right to slap or uh, pummel anyone who who requests this. Honey, I'm going to order a white Russian. <laughs> <laughs> what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. <laughs> oh, okay. Way to kill it, Luke. Okay. That's going to be it for this week. Uh, until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, gripes, and other things that you're determined to send us to doubtcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes, or the best way you can show your support for the show is, of course, sharing it with a friend or an enemy. And that's all. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>